Released on Sunday, July 13th, 2014, This Agile Life, Episode 56, Talking Out of Both Ends. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Amos King. John, I got a mouthful of chips and you're like interrupting. I told you to get done with the eating. <laughs> I'm trying. I gotta I gotta wash up my hands. Okay. Also joining us on the show today, Jason Tice. Good evening, John. Amos, what inspires you tonight? Your shirt. Thank you. My shirt from fitness, not from Agile. Jason's shirt does say inspire, so it is inspiring. It says inspired the world to fitness, so and also For some joining it makes me want to go to sleep huh. and eat potato chips. <laughs> also joining us today, guys, is the one, the only Lee McCauley. Hi, guys. I don't think there's any other Lee McCauley like this Lee McCauley. I hope not, because I keep getting their emails. <laughs> one day, I hope he tells us his real first name. <laughs> You can hope. Maybe that'll be his pick. I think when he <laughs> says it, he has a southern draw, and he's been trying to avoid it for so long. It could be it. It might have hyphens. Oh wow! All the good names. <laughs> all the good names do have hyphens. <laughs> okay. Well, we were talking a little bit before the show and getting Jason Tice nice and fired up about some stuff. First on deck tonight, a discussion of product owners. And to be a little more specific, how do product owners fit on your team? What do the devs, the team, want slash expect from their product owners? And a general discussion of what we think, as the, the hosts of This Agile Life, is an appropriate set of like roles and responsibilities for product owners. So, Jason, I'm so glad that you reminded everybody that we are hosting This Agile Life. I would hate for them to get confused while listening to this. How do you hang up on somebody? <laughs> Jason, why don't well, you take the ball and get us started with uh, your intro to this topic? I was just going to say it's something that, that I'm currently supporting product owner activities on a team. And something working with other teams as a, as a coach that I've become aware of is that there Many times there isn't a standard definition for what the product owner does. So by no means are we intending to give out a magic recipe for what the product owner should do here. But I think in our discussion, we'll demonstrate some of the differing viewpoints that are out there about what a product owner does on some teams that on other teams may help or may not be needed because the team does it other ways. And I guess the hope, the thing we hope you take away from this is if you are on a team and you are the product owner, or maybe you're on a team, you're a, you're a dev dude or someone and you work with a product donor, an opportunity to, to have some talking points for a discussion to really flush out roles or responsibilities to ensure you have a successful project. So what do you think, from your experience, Jason, what do devs want from the person that's providing the, doing the job of the product owner, whether or not they have the official title as product owner? What is it that the team really wants from that person? 
it's been said by many, and I, I don't know who to attribute it to. I mean, I know uh, Lisa Atkins talks about it in her Coaching Agile Teams book. It's in the Roman Pitchler book about agile product ownership with Scrum. But there's this idea of the product owner serving as a shield to shield the team and the devs on the team from all of the confusion that stakeholders can introduce into a process. I, so the first line of defense for getting all the bullshit feature requests denied because there's still going to be some to come through them yeah. that you've got to talk about. Like they're, they've got to have the vision of the product. Yeah. So, so to me, if you're on a team and, and actually it's funny because there's lots of tools out there that I've seen teams use. And suppose you communicate directly with your customer on a collaboration tool like Basecamp. So if you use Basecamp as a tool, you typically, there's a way you can set up your customer and they actually call it the client and you can actually include them on project threads. Now I've been on teams where this goes the other way where the, uh, the customer takes this and just starts emailing the team or multiple people who represent the customer start emailing the team all kinds of contradictory ideas and guidance and thoughts and feature requests and somebody needs to go through all that and really determine the source of truth for what goes into the backlog and then what gets pulled into a release uh, into a release in a sprint plan and a lot of, I mean, I've said on the podcast before, that's a full-time job, especially for a large project with multiple stakeholders. So if a dev wants to take that on, that's cool, but then they're going to really be supporting what I would call the product owner because the product owner is ensuring the team knows what needs to be built. Can this be a team job, like the whole team? So I question Amos, and I know we've had that discussion before. We've we've had discussions on prior episodes of This Has Your Life about is the product owner a full-time job? Is it a part-time thing? Is it on an as-needed basis? Can the team keep up with that? I think the whole team can step in and do uh, certainly do some of the things that the product owner does. But I think what you will end up with... So I like to think of the product owner as my Steve Jobs, someone who has a razor-sharp focus on what they want and they know what they want, and they know what they don't want, and they're going to be very clear and articulate with us about that and be able to say, no, we're building this thing, and they're strong, and they can drive us in the right direction, but then not interfere with the technical details of implementing that solution. Yeah, exactly. So focusing on, John, what to build versus how to build it, which are two completely different things. John, that aligns to uh, to really a lot of the read I've done, and, and full disclosure, I mean, I just recently um, presented, I teach a product owner workshop, uh, which we look at some of the techniques that Roman Pitchler and others have published, and really, they talk about how they see the product owner as the person responsible for ensuring the team builds the right thing. Nothing to do with how the team builds it. That's the work of the devel- of the delivery team. But really to be that person who has, I want to say, two-way respect because they are empowered by the customers and stakeholders to make decisions in the best interest of the product based upon what needs to be built. And the stakeholders and customers need to respect that. And then likewise, they do have authority really to kind of provide direction to the development team about what needs to be implemented. I think that we need to have clear boundaries on what the product owner's responsibilities are. You hinted at they tell you what to build, not how to build it, and things like that. I think that their whole job comes down to the three buckets, you know, where every feature request that comes in, their only job is to pigeonhole it. Is this a game changer, a showstopper, or a complete distraction? Yeah. yeah, That is their only job. That's it. They can't tell you 
anything else, no technical decisions, nothing. Yeah, or, or ways that I work, what I, again, since I mentioned I do a product owner workshop, I mean, ways that I coach that is to say, if you are a product owner, you should be writing stories that articulate business needs. And like a good story written that states business needs is as a user, I need to log in and, I don't know, enter my account information. I don't go into the details about you know, really what the design of that looks like. Because that's something that maybe you have a, a UX designer that works for your team. That's their role to go figure out how to design the screen so it looks. But really as a product owner, I, I would say that as a business, we need software that does X, Y, and Z. And Amos, to your point, you would prioritize that. And the only thing you didn't call out in your very simple three-stage classification is many things that the business will request, you may actually have to say no that no, we're not going to build that. You know, we, that's a special that, request that you just, you want. And because we're that, trying to, that's what the distraction the- is. That's what, that's that pigeonholing a distraction is that okay. that feature coming in. That's a no, it's a distraction. It's a waste of time. We're not doing it. It either doesn't fit what we see as the vision for the product, or it's just a useless feature that only you want. Like you said. Yeah, and that's what, and to me, that's what the product owner really has authority. Now, I would encourage product owners to do this in a collaborative fashion. Don't get all high and almighty and go up on a mountain and say, I profess this is what we shall do. And don't talk to anyone about it because that's not going to earn you a lot of trust. But at the same way, you are responsible for facilitating that type of decision in a collaborative manner with both the customers and the team. And when I say facilitating that, everyone should feel respected. Lee, I'm saying this for you. The product owner is not the Pope. (laughs) (laughs) Or Moses. I was thinking Moses. (laughs) Coming down from on high? Well, yeah, but... I was thinking specifically about the three tablets. I have these 15... Ten commandments. <laughs> we have twelve principles. Do an agile. So okay, so I think we got that established. Obviously, you know, everyone wants their stuff and you know, resources on any environment are, are limited, unless you work uh, in a couple of environments that I've heard of where like they don't have budgets, but most of us out there, you know, like Google, most of us, you know, we're typically working with some type of a, a limitation to how much work we can do. Everyone wants their stuff, someone's gotta prioritize it. I think Amish, you've got some great ideas that are very simple and things that product owners should do in a collaborative fashion. Okay, so we figured out what we're doing now. How I do stole we... these ideas. Oh, well. I, I stole them. But, but great artists steal, so it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Because you're going to tell us is steal and tweak. But let me ask you this. Okay, so you're all, you're that guy. You're on a product owner. You're working with your customer. You want to try to figure out, like, a demo. Like, what, what are we going to demo this week, okay? And somebody needs to help as a team. We need to figure out a goal to help the self-managing team stay motivated and focused to achieve that. Is that a product owner responsibility? Is that a, maybe a team leader, a scrum master? I would propose it's something the team needs to get done. Thoughts on if that's something the product owner should take on, or is that maybe better left to some other role on the team? Well, the product owner, to me, is ultimately responsible for helping us figure out and assigning priorities to the work that we're doing. Therefore, I think it's totally appropriate for the product owner to say, I want us this week to plan to demo these things at the end of the week. And to me, that's the the demo planning, as much of the demo planning as we need to do. Yeah, and and using your demo to drive, really to drive your your execution activities, which I think is great because it ensures then that there's immediate feedback on the most recent work items that the team has completed. And that typically, if you're, again, if you've prioritized as Amos suggested, hopefully those are the things that provide the most value to the product. So you're ensuring that you maximize the value in the software you develop. 
And I hopefully, think- hopefully by saying this is what we're going to demo at the end of the week, you've done that by talking to the dev team instead of just trying yeah. to tell them that when stuff's going to be done. Well, I, I know that that's a sore point mm-hmm. for you, Amos, and, and that's actually what I intended to say was that it's a conversation and not just a mandate because there, yeah. there sh- it should be a conversation and it should be somewhat of a maybe a negotiation because the team owes it to the product owner to say, maybe we should think about doing this because it makes sense right now or because it's more attainable than maybe something else that they're asking for. But Ultimately, I think the team owes it to the product owner to give him or her the final say on what they want done as long as it is within the realm of realistic possibilities for completing. I think Lee wanted to jump on this. Well, actually, I was going to say the same thing that Amos just said that, and what you just reiterated, John, so nothing new for coming from me, as usual. Well, or real life. I mean, uh, you guys can critique me. Here's something I did today, the very day. You can tell me I did the right or the wrong thing. So we had a, uh, we're working on a project. It's a flow. We're kind of backing our way into our first milestone release. So it's kind of like there's, we've had some ad hoc requests coming in from stakeholders. And, you know, in the midst of we're trying to say, okay, this is the final list of stories to get the first version out the door. Oh, here's this cool new feature. Oh, we got to do this. So, so we've had some of that. So it's been tough. But so at least we have a demo on Friday. And so we have at our planning meeting today and I made I called it the demo script that has the high level features which there's a rough mapping to, from story to feature but basically has the features in big bold print printed out we put it right next to our Kanban board and through the rest of the week now we're going to not only mark off when the code is complete for those features, but also when we've ensured we have it in a deployed version of the app that people can install for the demo on Friday and hopefully we can mark off some of those things sometime before Friday. Ideally, we mark a few off every day so we have incremental progress towards our weekly goal. I think that makes good sense and making them visible in the workspace in the team area is helpful because it helps keep everyone focused and it reminds the product owner is he or she's coming by for, you know, daily check-ins. These are the things that I've got the team, we as the team have agreed are our priorities and it's it's our focus and what we're going to demo. So let me ask you this, John. If you're a product owner, where should you sit? Ideally, co-locate it with the team. And I know that it's not always possible. I, I certainly have gone through situations where I've had product owners that were not even in the same building, not even in the same city, state, yeah. Etc. So it's difficult. You know, it just the circumstances of the relationship are going to be dynamic and different on each team. But ideally, it'd be great if they can be right there with the team, living and breathing the work that goes on, because then there's less need for structured, let's have a sit down meeting and discussion. And there's a lot more collaboration that can just naturally happen. Yeah, and the thing, because I today I moved in with my team. I said, I'm going to come, I'm going to, the product owner course that I do teach, uh, since we do reference the Roman Pitchler book, he mentions, and actually the guidance he provides is that each product owner should try to spend one hour working face-to-face with the team they support. And I said, well, let's try to do better. So we'll just move in with them. So I, but I, think, I think you're just I think you're just tired of uh, sharing an office with Matt. Oh, that's Miller. another story. We're not going to get into that. So I need like to find a resident advisor from like the college dorm to come and deal with that mess. But So oh. Jason, all kidding aside, what was the team's reaction to your moving in? I think uh, we don't know the outcome of that experiment yet. So I think I'll put that on the top of the discussion list for the next episodes of this Agile Life. Everyone will have to come back and hear what the outcome was. 
So, Jason, we we actually have our product owner that's co-located. Yeah, you have us. a co-located product owner too. You're, right. At least you're on a team that's doing it by the book. We're working on it. So we're, we're trying. I, I think that we have um, kind of a fuzzy boundary definition of our product owner, and to some degree, that's necessary in, in our situation. But and I'm not sure exactly what the right way to go about it is. Whether being the having that fuzzy boundary is good or bad. The thing I think that's great about the product owner, especially if you're working with a dev team that may not, maybe they're learning about the product owner role themselves as they go along, or maybe they're experiencing it for the first time, is it gives you an opportunity to make your work as the product owner transparent to the rest of the team. So like real life, tomorrow I got to go in and you know, now that we've kind of got our goal, we we really worked on our release plan for this, this milestone release we have coming up today. Now I get to go out and make sure the stakeholders are okay with that, you know, which is, you know, make sure it's documented. We got some people who are hard to get access to, so figure out how are we going to communicate with them? Are we going to email them? Are we going to call them? What are we going to do to get some buy-in to provide the assurance to the team that the plan we invested our time to make on Monday is valid and will get us to a successful outcome as voiced by our customers? And that just takes time. I think if Lee's okay with it here, we have an opportunity to discuss roles and responsibilities for a product owner versus a person who has simply had the product owner moniker, you know, slapped on to their nameplate and put on the door or window or cue wall or team area wall or whatever. <laughs> because you can call, you know, a stack of protoplasm a product owner doesn't mean that that person is actually functioning in that role. So do you feel that without, you know, maybe divulging any of the personal information about this person, what they've been asked to do is actually within the realm of product owner responsibilities? I think that at least in our case, for the most part, they are clear on what their role is and what they should be doing. I think they're also taking on a little bit of team administration that would normally be reserved for a project manager. But they're doing it because they're being asked to do it by higher up. Well, so yeah, I get, I'm not, I get well, let that. Let me ask that question. So, okay, if you are doing Scrum by the book where you got a Scrum master, a product owner, a delivery team, you don't have a project manager. So who should do that stuff? It depends on what that stuff is. But rather than jump directly into the discussion of project managers, I want to okay. stay focused on what the product owner is supposed to be doing because it's not administration uh, minutia for the team, you know, building charts or writing status reports. I could give a shit about that sort of stuff getting done. I want the Steve Jobs prototypical product owner person who has the strong vision, knows precisely what the business wants and needs, and is there to help translate that into actionable work for us as a team. So is that person uh, necessarily a person that is has spent years in the business that is going to be uh, affected by the product you're building? So, for example, in our case, our product owner is someone that is not necessarily trained in that particular area. She is she's doing a wonderful job of kind of trying to to get herself up in that area, but she doesn't have a background in it. So I'm not sure how much of the details she's going to be able to provide when it comes to business value. But she can do a great job of being able to figure out uh, what needs to be happening next as far as our features go, communicating with the customer, being that liaison, being the customer's stand-in when they're not there to a certain degree. 
That sounds yeah. more of business analyst sort of activity to me and not product owner. The product well, owner, it would be great if your product owner can always be, you know, experienced person from the domain for which you're developing the product itself. But if that can't happen, there are people that can quickly come up to speed and get the vision for a project and then help by facilitating those appropriate conversations between people that maybe do have more business experience with the team, serve as an intermediary to help those conversations happen without having to be the end-all, be-all source of knowledge for that particular domain within the business. But, John, one thing I just want to make sure we're clear on is, you know, communication or the act of communicating is an essential activity to run a successful business or to build a product. And uh, something I want to make sure people are clear on is if you are a product owner and you, I've said before, you know, number one responsibility of product owner is building relationships with stakeholders. That implies that you have to do all this communication. And because, I mean, that might mean you go to meetings. That might mean write emails. That might mean maybe you have to do some, I'm going to use the term, some kind of marketing documents. So, you know, take your story list out of whatever tool you're using to track your execution level data and, you know, boil it down into a, a one page pretty thing that your stakeholders will actually look at. In my opinion, those are activities which are vital to effectively communicating with your customers. And I want to make sure that if, if you're a product owner, you're doing that, that is not administrative work. I mean, that's effectively ensuring that you have customer buy-in for what you're building. Does that make sense or am I in left field? Writing emails and communicating may be an essential part of the communication channel, but that's certainly not a prerequisite to being a good product owner. You can find other ways to communicate, other ways to carry the mail in terms of what the users want that doesn't have to mean, you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I feel like what I don't want to see happen out there in the world is for people to start saying, I'm the product owner for this project that we're doing internally. Yet what that person is really doing is a bunch of administrative crap that may be important because somebody needs to do it and somebody needs to get it done. We're not going to call you product owner because it skews that term towards something that I don't think we want it to uh, have the connotation of. Well, well, let me ask you this, John. You brought up the I was talking about the one hour rule before with you know the the product owner work with the team. So you mentioned what if you have the product owner that's like you know in another city, your customers and your stakeholders are in another city. So you're the product owner. I mean, what do you do? I mean, to me, communication with distant stakeholders can be a full-time job. I mean, what what do you do? That, and I would propose that if you are doing things that enable that communication, that is not administrative work. That's facilitating the delivery of a project. So I, I have done this, and I've done this for your employer, and it's not a full-time job. It's not nearly a full-time job. So you can take somebody that's a coach slash developer slash team lead and say, you're going to be our conduit. That means that you're not going to get to spend your entire week writing software. You're going to have to spend some amount of time flying to the client site, having conversations with the client, helping coach the client on coming up with that set of priorities to communicate back to the team. There's that communication aspect that you're going to have to deal with, helping the client figure out those buckets of, you know, it's a game changer and, and whatever else they are. I, I have to write those all down so I can uh, repeat I, them. They're in my pick. 
Good. from who I stole it from. Good. I find that a fantastic person to do that job is your QA lead because it gives them an intimate knowledge of what the customer wants in order for them to better QA everything also. That and really all that communication stuff, the best way to do it is to find some tool where everybody on the team gets to see all of that communication. Don't waste it away in a hidden email. Oh, yeah, totally. I agree, Amos. Email is deadly. Yeah, so use some of the tools that you brought up earlier. Hip chat, things like that are great ways. And if you are going to use email, set up for your entire team to have a listserv. That, that's the only way the customer like communicates through emails. They send it to this list, and everybody on the team gets it. You might have only one person designated as the responder to that, but at least everybody sees it. Yeah, no, that's great advice, Amos. So I guess I'm just, I'm going back to John and his fictitious week here at, at my employer where you go to the customer, you have some stakeholder discussions, you elicit user stories, you travel back, you then work with the dev team to, you know, shape those into, you know, actionable stories after you've prioritized them since you have authority to do that. You go through planning sessions with planning and grooming sessions with the team to go over and ensure whole team understand those stories. I'm struggling with how this does not become a near full-time job on any mid to large project. Maybe on a small project with a few people, it doesn't have to be, but there's a lot of work to do there. Because all of those activities that you just described take about 10 hours a week to do, to have a grooming session, to maybe create some UI mock-ups to help better communicate what it is uh, the customer and you were having a conversation about, and then facilitating an interactive conversation with the customer to refine that and make it better. It's 10 to 15 hours a week max. I think for, a, for I'm going to say, a, otherwise you're dogging it. For a normal-sized team, you know, five to seven people with a product owner, I think that's probably realistic. I think that's that's probably not a bad ballpark. But if you're on a multi-team or a larger project, it can go a lot higher. Okay, sure. I've not been on one where we had one person that was handling that job that was large, that it even worked. Still a lot of that work that, that needs to be done is, is happening by the client, right? They're doing a lot of thinking. Maybe they're writing down information, communicating that information to you. And so they spend a lot of their time doing that work. So it's a shared set of responsibilities. So no one person is doing it 100% of their time. No, I agree fully with that. So I think one of the things, though, that I've seen in the past is that that product owner at least on the dev side, from our perspective, make sure that the customer is actually completing the things that they need to complete and doing it in a nice way that isn't hounding them, but still gets the results. So I agree that it's probably not a necessarily a full-time job, um, but I think there's a decent amount of, of work there, and it's scattered out all over the place. So it's not like you've got those 10 to 15 hours aren't just right next to each other. They're spread out all over the entire week. Well, and I think the nature of the work too, Lee, because a lot of it involves feedback loops. I mean, and unless you have the customer right there, you know, you might have to, you know, raise a question to the customer and wait for feedback. So it's, um, I think John brings up a great idea to say that, or uh, John and or Amos to say that, you know, is there an opportunity at the person level to talk about role overloading and say that maybe that person, if they're able to effectively support all of the product owner duties, can role overload and support some other activities for the team, be it QA, and things like that. 
I think role overloading is a good way of putting it because we made the mistake in one project that uh, Jason will be familiar with, at least from our product owner at the time, from their perspective, we were trying to roll overload them, but it was in an official capacity. And therefore, uh, the team felt like one of those roles, uh, in this case, they were also doing QA, one of those roles got left behind because they were essentially the only QA. And so they felt like they weren't getting enough out of that person. Now, that being said, I think that if you have a full-time QA and the product owner can roll overload to do QA or to do some of these other tasks, that's a perfect way for them to spend their extra time and be helpful to the team. Yeah, and I think another thing just to mention too for people who might be listening to this is as a product owner, it's important to, I guess, assess the familiarity your stakeholders and customers are with, I guess, the activities associated with Agile or, or Scrum software development, knowing that there are, as John mentioned, there are customers out there where they effectively, they literally give you well-written user stories and then all you have to do is prioritize and validate them and it's they do the work for you and there are other stakeholders out there where you get a, a whole widely dispersed range of ideas and you need to go through working with stakeholders in the team and assess the business value they provide to prioritize that to determine what to build. And every project's different. So, I mean, we're having a discussion here about some ideas and some rules of thumb, but please don't take the, I guess, the timing we have here you know, to be a solid recommendation because there's a lot of variables in play here that are going to be different in every environment out there. I like Amos's recommendation of using someone who has responsibilities of doing quality assurance on the team. I also like Lee's watch out that he mentioned about making sure that it's not someone who is is like the single person responsible for for that activity because then you're going to maybe tear them in a way that's not sustainable. They may have to surge on some QA activity and then neglect other activities. So this is one of those things where I'm torn because I don't like to say we have somebody who just does QA, right? I like to say we have a team of people that do everything. And then it's a lot easier to carve someone out and say, okay, your responsibility for the next few months is going to be that serve as that conduit to help work with our real product owner, our real client to synthesize some of that information. Now, one thing that I'd like to caveat with what I mentioned about a part-time responsibility as that conduit is that that is also going to depend on how much the client has their shit together. If the John, client... I just said the same thing in a much more eloquent manner. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah, but people will remember John's way. Oh, goodness if, gracious. If the client is scattered, right, if the client doesn't have a clear vision and they need a lot of coaching and a lot of help, and I'm sorry if this is repetitive, Jason, but... No, it's okay. You're saying it's fine. Then you are going to have to spend more time getting them to some sort of a, a stable path where they, they're going through some repeatable cycles to produce good information to provide to the team on priorities, on features, on vision, on direction for the project. And, and just to be clear, I've seen that done as the product owner coaching the client or the customer themselves, or I've seen it where the product owner works with an agile coach and the agile coach helps the customer do a story writing workshop and the coach facilitates that. But the key thing is to realize that, you know, you've got to, like we said before, uh, when we were talking about a BA, you have to assess how well articulated is the vision for this product. And again, as product owner, 
the product needs to have a solid product vision. If that's not well-defined and well-communicated amongst all involved, that's something that needs to occur. That takes time. So if you're on one of those projects that has a well-defined vision, awesome. Then you don't have to do that. You could just work to prioritize stories in accordance with it. But every scenario is going to be different. And the the story writing workshop thing that you discussed needs to be everybody. Yeah. Because so many times, yes, a product owner will do that filtering that I've talked about them doing, and I think we've all talked about them doing. But by the time the story gets down to anyone else on the team, it's like, what does this even mean? Because a lot of it gets discussed verbally instead of written into the story. And so your whole team needs to be involved in all of that. Can I get a definition on what this story writing workshop is? Because I don't know if I'm just crabby tonight or what, but some of this stuff sounds like things that <laughs> that we could come up with a much more streamlined process for helping the team get better at writing stories than sending them off or spending half of a day running them through a workshop. I guess when I say workshop, I should say, call it a story mapping exercise. So suppose you have a real-life project. Heaven forbid you're in a place where you have people still producing very large software requirements documents. Many organizations have those. And they say, hey, we want to start a project based upon this large requirements document that we happen to have invested a large amount of money to write last year. And it's still valid. It's something we the business wants to invest in. Well, how do you take that large document and start to refine it into user stories that a team could actually start implementing. First, you take the document, and you find the nearest shredder, and you run it right through that. Yeah! yeah. <laughs> See, the only problem is, and I understand that, John, but the, the problem is if you're in a complex domain where you've got compliance and regulatory, so take finance, insurance, healthcare, anything out there these days, where you have, as an organization, you have invested a large amount of money to figure out, hey, we need to update our system to do X, Y, and Z, or we want to build a system to do X, Y, and Z to keep us legal. I don't think you want to throw that information away. There's a lot of value in that. The problem there's, is uh, there's only value if the information gets disseminated. And the problem is, is if you have it in some huge document, uh, especially something like a, re- a classic requirements document, the people that actually need that, which are the devs, aren't going to read it. And even if they did, they wouldn't be able to to really translate that into something that they can use. Not for the most part. So what do you do then? So you're you're a real life project. You've got this large requirements document that's there. That I mean, if anything, uh, I've done some work where we've figured out the cost to produce those documents. Which sometimes it's you know it's a document that to build the product, an organization might have invested a half a million dollars to figure out what to build. You know, in terms of people's time to do the analysis, there's a lot of value there that is no. Needed. There's a lot of waste there. Well, I, I, okay, I agree, but it's a sunk cost because it's done. It's like you show up on day one, oh, here's our large document so, that says what we need so, to do. So great, thanks for all the research, but when we start putting this stuff into users' hands, often that research doesn't matter. I've not once seen a large document continue to be viable after the very beginning of the project. Well, after no, about I, a month. No, 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 no. <laughs> after about first, like iteration of a usable product that you throw into a user's hands, everything changes from that document. From the requirements of what it's going to look like and how it's going to work to what is the priority. It all changes. The document might have some value to the stakeholders and the folks that commission that document because it helps them remember why it is they're doing certain things. But as far as the team goes that's doing the development work, keep it as far away from them as possible. 
Yeah, I think so, the document can be great for a product owner who's trying to determine whether a feature is a distraction or not by looking at what the original goal of the product was and yeah, deciding it, whether that still is the goal or whether it is morphed. But yeah, I agree with John. Keep it away from the team. That, which exactly is what I was when we this we got in this rabbit hole by talking about the story writing workshop, which I guess as a as a coach is that maybe the idea of workshop I think led you guys astray because that's the idea of saying, hey, let's go in a room, let's take the people involved in the project, let's take this large document that has a lot of legalese and things we have to do where we get sued and get put out of business or get sent to jail, things we don't want to do, and let's build a story map that we can actually start writing software from that merges ideas from the people involved, ideas from the customers, and then all of this other information that we have to figure out how to be successful within its constraints. Do you understand that some people would probably rather have their toenails and fingernails pulled out than go through what you just described? Okay, but there are software applications out there that people have written that if you do not follow certain policies or regulation and you release it to prod, someone is going to go to jail. Can or you be fine. Can you or just summarize? Can you just summarize the legal requirements and move on then? Uh, how like, many, like, would you like, like me to send you some legislation briefs? I mean, laws is typically not that simple, Amos. Isn't it going to be the responsibility of the client and the product owner to keep you on the rails with that, though, as a part of going through the development process and explaining the reason why we need to implement this, you know, double Fibonacci gate is that it's required by the FDA that we do so. Therefore, it has high complexity, but it also has a high level of value because it's a bar that we just have to get over for our software to be qualified in that space. Yeah, so so I guess what I want to ask for clarification on that, and, and this is where, again, you cannot run a successful self-managing agile development team if you're working from a very large, heavy you know, requirements document. I think we all agree with that. But what I'm here at Amos, and for you, John, too, is this idea of saying, okay, product owner or maybe product owner working with some business analysts, you guys are responsible for understanding all of that complex information, which is vital to our business. And that's something that, again, you're going to shield the development team from the complexity of that information and effectively ensure the teams, that, the stories that make it onto the team's board align appropriately. So that's something that the product owner and the BAs are going to do to support the team but the team may not be involved in all that because you guys are saying you got better things to do. The only time I've ever been involved in a situation like you're talking about, and I've worked for banks and stock traders and everything else, to where there was enough government regulation to even be super painful to the entire team was when I worked for the military. And what I'm pointing out is not that that's a waste of our time or that it's not valuable to get those insights and that information, but don't lock me in a room for a day and tell me to take this you know, 50-page requirements document or research study that you guys commissioned someone to do and have me turn that into stories. Yes, it's important and valuable that someone gained a certain amount of learning by going through the process of discovering all of the regulatory and compliance things that are important to us. So take those, put a pin in them, go ahead and write some stories that say, these are our regulatory compliance stories. We have to make sure we get these done. But let's not spend the whole day pouring through the document to, or, in excruciating okay. detail because I don't need to understand all of the reasons, wherefores, and legalese that goes and, behind that. And usually the legalese stuff is around individual features. You have like a little bit of legal issues that you have to deal with with one feature and a little bit with another. So you can only feed that to us 
whenever you're at the point of working on that feature, you don't need to feed me everything a year in advance and story map this out for six months of how we're going to meet all these regulation things. No, okay, so okay, so to clarify, by no means was the intent to ever say you should take a large requirements document and turn it into a comprehensive story map, but it would be a way to say if you've got a large body of information to get your first release started and your first few sprints started or whatever you're doing, you know, go ahead and, and as a team with the BAs and the product owner and the devs involved, do a story map to get things started, but understand that that story map may very well be constrained by elements from the domain. So that might be hidden somewhere in that large requirements document. And again, if you're a product owner, I would propose your responsibilities is to come up to speed on what those are, working either yourself or working with BAs, and either they become requirements or acceptance criteria within user stories or if they're overarching maybe they're non-functional requirements that constrain the outputs of the team and need to be checked you know like if it's could even be something technical like hey this application because of its nature we have to ensure we encrypt all data at rest you know wherever it's persisted anywhere in our stack so that's a non-functional requirement that you just have to do or yeah. again if you're doing finance you're doing hipaa you're doing healthcare, you gotta do it it's just right. there i'm frustrated with continually hearing people say that we had to build that giant document and spend $250,000 doing it because we have to make sure we're complying with HIPAA regulations. Or, you know, because quite frankly, I think that that's somebody's excuse for either justifying the $250,000 or their job or whatever. And I think we all know that there are much leaner ways to go about this that will still have a regulatory compliant outcome in the end. And I bet every one of us on this podcast has been involved in a project that had regulatory compliance issues that you didn't have to deal with that and had very successful projects that aren't causing people to be sued. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly, but there's also a lot of environments out there where if you are the product owner and or if you are a product owner, you should think twice before you make a large document that represents what the project is or what the you know what the outcome of a project is and instead you should look for more lightweight and reusable forms to communicate across a wide audience user story story map you know do your project vision statement as a twitter post you know how can you summarize what this project is and what you're trying to get done in 140 characters it's an interesting team exercise if you haven't tried it yeah i mean and if if you do have a bucket of money like that where you're like we need to spend this on these things consider taking a different approach to it. And rather than spending the time writing the document and going through that, take half of that money and build a proof of concept and then evaluate that proof of concept for is the proof of concept working and within our regulatory compliance needs. And if it's not, then you can spend a little more money to get it there. And guess what? You have working software and not some piece of shit document. We did that with a fantastic naval chat project that I'm pretty sure some of you are familiar with. Yeah, but are you we looking can't... for applause, Amos? Ah! Yeah, we, but we Why? can't. We can't Why? claim knowledge of. Yeah, said I, I didn't project. Start project. <laughs> well, no. And here's another thing to just to, to ensure we emphasize is that as I think, if you are a product owner, or even this, this to me is where sometimes our our friends in the BA department are also what I call opportunities for improvement. So, if you are a BA or a product owner. 
what is the frequency that you get validation of your outputs from an actual development team? So I'm a BA, you know, if I want to have that job, and it says it on my business card, I'm a business analyst. What is the frequency that the work that you produce or really the information you curate? Because if you're a BA, you're typically curating information, you know, pull some of this, pull some of this, synthesize a document, come with a proposal. That's good work. And if you're trying to plan and run a business, don't underestimate the value that provides. But don't just make plans and, you know, and just think about it. Take that plan, make it very small, find a a team or a way that you can build that plan. And instead of hypothesizing about what the outcome might be, release your thing to production and get some real feedback. Amos has gotten the drinks out, so... He's gone into the Jameson or something. Yeah, but, but I'm serious. If you're a BA out there, um, to me, that's a discussion to have within your organization, maybe with your leadership, to say, hey, I want to get more validation and more feedback that we're doing the right thing here. So before, you know, if you're... And again, I've worked with BAs. I've been a BA. And I've been told, hey, go do a four-month business plan and case study to plan this thing out. And I went and I did it. And the problem is I did four months of work. I came with a plan and we started to work on it, and we kind of figured out two months into it, it wasn't going to work out. That's what how every one of those documents ends up. That's what I'm saying. So if you're in that role, to me, that's an opportunity that we're sharing. Again, I'm sharing my own experiences I've learned in my career. Don't do that. You know, say, hey, can I work on it for maybe, a, you know, two weeks, and I'll do a presentation, I'll give you a pitch, and say, this is enough for us to get started. And I mean, if you went to business school, you learn how to write business plans, learn how to do it in a shorter cycle. So instead of making a four-month plan, make a two-week plan. Yeah, absolutely. Make Shorten the feedback loop as much as you can within the realm of reason so that you're not just constantly, you know, spinning over you're, the same thing. You're far more likely to hit your regulatory goal, goals and know for sure that you hit them if you do it in the small chunks, too. So, yeah, so let's let's bring this back to product ownership real quick and then do some final wrap up and maybe we'll give Jason, we'll give the Agile Factor the last word on the subject. But if you come to a project and there is this document, I think it's a tool for a product owner. Product owner can take that and put it in his fancy little product owner binder and it can be one of the things that the product owner, you know, refers back to and says... I know we need to do accomplish these things. I know we have these compliance requirements that we have to fulfill and then can feed some of that information into the team in appropriate amounts and increments without just dropping the whole thing on them and saying, guys, we need to make sure we do all of the things as described in this 50-page, 150-page, 1,050-page document. And John, the only thing that I would caveat that with or add to that is that's exactly, I think, the way a product owner, especially on a larger complex project, could really benefit a team is that the product owner make that transparent. So it's like, yeah, guys, you know, you co-locate with the team. Guys, I was spent today pouring through this giant document that we got that we have to do to ensure we remain legal. Does anyone want to get in on this with me and, and offer, you know, and know that as a product owner, if that's, I accept that as part of something I have to do to ensure we build the product that so our, you know, our customer doesn't get sued. I signed up for that job. I'll do it. I'd love some help, but at the same time, you know, if you have other responsibilities on the project and you don't see that, that's okay. But I think you should at least offer to do that in a transparent manner uh, for those that may be interested. And most people probably won't believe that I would even say this unless you've worked with me in the past. But if you're told about a meeting like that and you are offered to go to that meeting, go. Any meeting, you should probably just go to. I know they suck, and I know we don't want to be there, but go. Or I, I, I think you drank too much, Amos. I, no, haven't or, I, I haven't I had a sip. 
Well, or real life. I mean, to me, this is a whole, this is a team discussion to say, you know, if if you have this domain and, or I've seen, I've worked with product owners that, you know, if they're going to work with stakeholders and write stories, they pair with another member of the team on whatever the process is to work with the stakeholders and write stories. And then that person kind of has knowledge. And then when you go to planning, there's at least one person other than the product owner that has that highly intimate knowledge of what the stories are because they actually helped create them. I think one of the things that you would miss, to Amos's point, if you didn't take the product owner up on this opportunity to have that discussion, is that a decision may be made, and people may make an assumption based on the facts that they have. And if you're there, maybe you can offer additional insights, additional facts uh, that could help craft and steer the product owner in maybe a better direction than if you hadn't been there. So be involved. And, and be it, an owner. And if it's... And if you don't find out because you didn't go to that meeting till a week later, there may have been wheels put in motion and you may have cost your company or your customer's company money because you didn't go to that meeting. I think we may be uh, talking out of both ends of our bodies here. Yeah, guys. I was say, I've been keeping notes on this <laughs> so I could attempt to give the last words, and we have gone full circle about three times in this conversation. So, All right, um, Jason, then let's let you... Wrap it up for us here. So I think tonight we have shed some light on the complexities and the unknowns of being a product owner or being on a team with a mysterious role called a product owner, knowing that a person is not necessarily a role. The thing that I would encourage everyone to take from this is take all the different things you heard tonight as a reflection of what reality is. And if you're on a team, you are a product owner, you've been asked to be a product owner, you got someone coaching you on being a product owner, or you're a dev dude and you got this product owner that shows up once in a while to talk about stuff, have a discussion about what it is for your team. Ideally, that product owner is going to help, you know, figure out and ensure everyone understands what the vision is. As Amos said, they're going to talk about prioritizing what we got to do, what we should do, what we could do, and most importantly, what we won't do. But that's going to be different for every single team. If you had the benefit of training, you know, you're a certified Scrum product owner, you've taken a product owner class, offer the information you've learned, but understand that maybe different teams have different contexts that you need to talk through with that team to know what's going to work. So the bottom line is there isn't a magic recipe. There isn't any secret sauce here other than things we talk about all the time in this Agile life. Agile is all about communication. So I encourage you guys to communicate with the people you work with and figure out what works best for your team that allows you to be successful. Don't forget trust. All right. Communication and trust. This week's hottest picks. And Jason, what's your pick for our show today? Okay, I like to change things up. Oh my goodness. So my picks were inspired by um, uh, a recent conference in St. Louis. This guy, Kevin Carroll, he's an awesome uh, motivational speaker about play at work. He was in town. So I want to put a plug for his website and blog about um, uh, some of the cool things that he has done in his career to inspire teams and people to have more fun at really big, cool places like Nike. So um, check it out. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, KC Catalyst. Another great book that's out there that is very closely related to some of Kevin's work is uh, the Pennenberg book about play at work. And it really is a book about innovation and creativity that you inspire through interactive games. We'll put a link to where you can get it on Amazon. I've read it. I think it's a great thing. I've incorporated some of those ideas and others into a couple different games and innovation activities that I facilitate with groups. And last but not least, something Kevin mentioned, which I thought was just hilarious, is this thing called the Red Ball Project. So it's redballproject.com. It's kind of a public arts project, which uh, basically uh, some people started putting this big inflatable red ball around cities like Portland, and they put a camera on it, 
And it was fascinating to see people who are so addicted to their life on their mobile device that they walk right past this big ball and they don't ever realize it. And I guess the takeaway I'd ask you guys to say, yeah, we talked about tonight with the product owner, product vision, thinking about the big picture. A lot of times that big picture is not on your mobile device. So it's okay to turn off and look around, enjoy the view. Maybe there'd be a big red ball you can see. All right. Good picks, Jason. Thank you. My picks tonight are kind of coming from a couple of things that have happened recently in my life. One of those is I've gotten, and I don't know how you guys feel, and and maybe we can save the discussion for another show, but it's become increasingly hard to track the improvements that we talk about in our retrospectives and make them publicly visible, you know, putting them on a whiteboard or posting them in, in the work area is good. What I've just taken to doing is writing everything up in Evernote and then sharing the Evernote with everyone so that they have an easy electronic access to that information. So my first pick is Evernote. But how I want to change this up a little bit is I want to ask everybody, do you have a better way to go about this, to track the improvements that you guys have documented that you want to make on the team during a retrospective and then give the team a way to keep track of their progress against making some of those improvements throughout the course of the sprint or iteration that you're working on. And yes, Jason, this does kind of get back to, you know, capturing some metrics or at least keeping track of your progress. But in my quick assessment of the industry, I don't see anything out there that makes anything like this easy for any of us to do. So I'm asking you, the listening audience, to help us out. And if you have any ideas for how to do this, send us a tweet at This Agile Life. Okay, my second pick is a book. It's an old book. I have information that says that David Allen is going to be creating a new up-to-date version of this book, and the book is called Getting Things Done. So I wanted to reread this book. I I think I read it probably eight or ten years ago for the first time. And as I started reading the book, I started to remember that and find that there's a lot of great references to how knowledge workers have to deal with their work differently. And I certainly think that we all qualify as knowledge workers. And I think there's some good insights in this book that if you haven't read before, maybe you can skim through and pick up some of these insights and into managing knowledge work. And so check that out, Getting Things Done. I've got the link to the book in the show notes and David Allen's website. All right, Amos, your picks tonight. All right, I have two picks. Uh, One of them I alluded to earlier is how to build great products. I think I picked this before, but uh, we always talk about the distractions and game changers and, um, sorry, showstoppers blanking out. So I just wanted to bring it up again because I know this has been brought up multiple times in podcasts. Great little article. I steal from it or quote it all the time. I often refer people to it. My other pick is the Dave Thomas Foundation. So the founder of Wendy's, not a lot of people know that he was a child in foster care and was adopted. So he started the Dave Thomas Foundation, which is finding forever families for children in foster care. Just would like to add that to my pick. I'm a foster parent myself. So check that out. Great, Amos. Thanks. All right, Lee, you're up. Okay, so my first pick is actually from my past life when I used to live in Memphis, Tennessee. I got to know a guy by the name of Eric Matthews. He reminds me a lot from an energy perspective of Jason. So he created a company. He's the uh, owner and CEO of a company called Startco. 
out of Memphis, and it's really an entrepreneur startup incubator kind of a place. And they've got a great little uh, website, which I think is perfect for Eric, which is called neverstop.co, because he just never stops. And so if you're in the Memphis area and you have some great idea or something that you want to try to get some help on and get maybe a mentor that can can help you bring it to market, go check out neverstop.co. Great stuff. The last one that I want to tell you about is one that is in response to something that, from the Red Ball project that Jason put up. There's this very old video about uh, your attention span, and it's called. If you if you look on uh, Google for "Did you see the guy in the gorilla suit?", you will find this video. We'll have a link for it in the uh, show notes. But uh, this is a great little video that they show at uh, demonstrations all the time, where they tell people they have a bunch of people there and they're tossing a ball back and forth and you're asked to count how many times the ball changes hands and so you're paying attention to this ball changing hands and while you watch the video unbeknownst to most people that are watching it a guy in a gorilla suit walks completely through in between the people throwing the ball and waves at the camera and you nobody notices it or almost no one notices it until they show the thing again and they said now watch for the guy in the gorilla suit and so you can find that video it's a great little demonstration the same thing that red ball is is doing that relates to i think something we've discussed and maybe we've discussed it before i can't remember uh the concept of change blindness where you're so focused on on certain things you you don't notice some of the things that are going on in the peripheral or right smack dab in front of your face right because you're just so focused on something else i think that's why all successful projects need highly engaged product owners that are supported by well-aligned enterprise architects. Oh, geez. He went there. <laughs> he, he just well, time-warped back How to the enterprise architect. How do you achieve the strategy I, of following the enterprise architecture? Oh. All right, before he morphs any farther into Mr. Enterprise Architect, I think we should wrap up the show. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. That's all we have time for for this show. Check out thisagilelife.com for these show notes. And for all our great picks and the link to the man in the gorilla suit walking through the middle of the video, and out there on thisagilelife.com, you can find all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening, and keep living this agile life. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.